welcome to the podcast. This is Werner. And this is Jackson. Hey, I'm Carrie. Today we're going to talk about a important and fun topic. We're going to highlight some of the half-truths that surround the whole topic of honor and shame. All you got to do is jump into a conversation with somebody and immediately they're going to say, but isn't this true? Isn't that true? And I find myself again and again responding, well, yes, that's partially true, but there's more. That's what we're going to jump into today. We're going to try to clarify some of our terms and definitions so that we can have a more constructive conversation concerning how honor and shame influence our theology and our mission ministry practice. What do you, what do you guys say we jump in? Let's do it. Let's go. Well, great. Since this is a podcast that, that looks at the intersection between the Bible, the biblical text, and cultural context, let's start off with start off at the beginning with Genesis. People sometimes wonder, isn't honor and shame just a cultural thing? But as Werner, as you like to point out, this goes back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. So what are some of those texts that people need to have in mind when we're talking about what honor and shame is and, and from a biblical perspective? Well, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2, the very final verses, just before Genesis 3, where we have the fall— we have a description of the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. And it tells us in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25, this is the last verse of Genesis 2. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So it's really profound to think that the description of humanity before the fall is not described as being not guilty, but that the but that they were not ashamed. That's really interesting. If you think about when you, people normally talk about the garden, what's the first thing people often talk about? Is it shame? No, it's usually, at least from my experience, people talk about how you know, Adam and Eve were innocent. They were not guilty. So, for a lot of people who may have grown up in the church, they read verse 25 and they think, oh, this is a misprint. You would think, oh, both are naked and not guilty. But that's not what it says. And so it's very intriguing that the very last bit before we get into the origin of sin in chapter 3 is this idyllic state of not ashamed. There's no shame. So chapter 3. What happens in chapter 3, Gary? Well, this is... Chapter 3, you know, 7 through 13, I mean, this is where the blame game starts, right? And this is where they heard the Lord walking in the garden, and then the Lord called to them, where are you? And then this is kind of the, the back and forth, have you eaten of the tree? The man says, no, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord goes to the woman. The woman says, well, yeah, when me, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Yeah, it's here. It's really interesting. Someone might say, hey, there's no explicit shame language. But this whole passage is laden with shame practices, shame responses, shame thinking. You have fear. You have this hiding. And you had this blame game that goes on. I mean, these are classic examples of what happens when there is shame in the picture. 
So sometimes people have this word thing fallacy that, that gets in the way where they think if the word's not there, the concept's not there. Well, what you have is you have the explicit shame language right at the end of chapter two, and then you know, it builds throughout chapter three. You have the evidence, the manifestation of shame, of the exact opposite of what you get in, in you know, back in chapter two in this idyllic state, fear, hiding, blame. So shame is all over the text in, in chapter two and three. So we start here because we have to think through what is shame, what is honor, what is guilt, and how do we define these terms? Because otherwise, we're, we're, we're going to think this is just some kind of thing we're imposing on the text. And if we're not clear about our terms, we're just going to talk past each other. So uh, with this in mind, let's think through uh, our agenda for today. The opening chapters of, of the Bible depict the genesis of shame and guilt in the world. But historically, Western Christians have usually emphasized guilt at the expense of shame. And in this episode, I, in this conversation, I want to suggest that this imbalance undermines our attempts to contextualize the biblical message. So to try to make a little bit of headway in, in correcting that problem, let's define our terms. That's, that's, that's our agenda for today. Now, anytime we start talking about honor and shame, a debate inevitably breaks out about what honor is and what shame is. When you guys have been in conversation with people about honor and shame, what are the kind of ideas, images, whatever that people tend to talk about? I think the conversation revolving around shame is it's been popularized, I think, currently. Um, that we shouldn't be experiencing shame. We should get rid of things that are shaming to us that, you know, a lot of talk around like you are enough and that we should not allow ourselves to be shamed. We shouldn't live in shame. So there's definitely a negative bent to it, I think. Mm. If we look at the pop, you know, kind of the pop culture explanation of it, Brene Brown has brought up a lot about shame. And I, some of her stuff is great. I think she has some really good things to say about the role of shame in our lives and honor, I think we look to celebrities for honor. We assume they have honor because of what they've done. We look at honorable people, and those are people maybe that are philanthropic. And so I think from maybe a worldly secular perspective, the conversation of honor and shame is is actually a fairly common one. It was interesting, just recently, the U.S. men's soccer team failed to make the Olympics for, the I think, the third consecutive time, failed to make it. And it was interesting, as you read, they weren't guilty of anything, mm. but people definitely put shame upon them for not competing to the level they thought a U.S. men's team could should be competing. So, I mean, that's just a real recent example. And so I think we see it all the time once we have eyes to see it. Yeah, I think the conversation about shame straddles uh, between the emotion of shame mm. and, you know, the feeling of shame, you know, what we might call the subjective dimension of it, the psychological dimension. And then there's the reputational or the social dimension of shame. I think, mm. Carrie, what you mentioned there about the U.S. soccer team, 
that was not about psychological shame. That was about reputation, right? right? I mean, the mm. U.S. soccer team <laughs> deserves to be in the Olympics. Right. The men's soccer team right. should be there. Otherwise, it's a big shame on, right. you know, on the U.S. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that's generally where the shame conversation seems to go, seems to straddle. Mm. When I first uh, started learning about honor and shame, I learned from Jerome Nairi in his book, Honor and Shame in the Gospel of Matthew, that at least in the biblical literature, that most often shame is socially defined or socially experienced. It's the negative view of other people upon the self or upon the family or upon the nation. And so both honor and shame were expressions of a social dynamic. Mm. Wow. Everything that you guys have said, I have found to be spot on that people tend to talk about, you know, Brene Brown, especially. I also hear people talk about like chivalrous knights mm. and they think, okay, honor is an old medieval thing. Or I uh, had another friend who was always saying, well, honor and shame are bad because that's where suicide bombers come from and, mm. and honor killings and things like that. So if you listen to these examples, whether it be sports team, the soccer team, Brene Brown, honor killings, or medieval knights, you almost wonder if we're talking about the same thing. Right. All, all these different domains and conversations, topics use the phrase honor, shame, or some kind of a synonym that it really does seem like we're, talk, we're having different conversations. It's no surprise that, that no matter what someone says about honor and shame, you want to say, well, hey, that's true. Uh, but there is more. You know, you know, there's a lot of half-truths out there. Uh, and, and I haven't even brought out the fact that we need to distinguish where shame is different from guilt. Mm-hmm. And later, we're going to have a fun conversation about white shame versus white guilt. So I just do a teaser for their, for that conversation. All right. So what is shame? Let's, let's, let's start there. There was a recent article in the journal Missiology by a scholar named David Dunnitz. And he had just some, I think, some good words to set the conversation. He said, Although honor and shame have been popular missiological themes in the past decade, there have been several limitations associated with the concepts that occur in both the missiological literature and the secular, anthropological, sociological, and psychological literature. And he goes on to say, the first set of limitations concerns the meaning of honor and shame. And the definitions vary from author to author. So I don't want us to fall into that trap of not defining our terms. So I'm going to pose a definition and then I want to hear what you guys think. I'm suggesting for, let's do shame first, that shame is the fear, pain, or state of being devalued according to some criteria of worth is the fear, pain, or state of being devalued according to some criteria of worth. And sometimes, most of the time, it's going to be some social criteria. But how does that strike you? Does that does that cover some of these topic, these various domains? This is kind of what I've been working off of. But I mean, different definitions may work better for other people. Here's why I like the definition. The, this idea of the criteria of worth can be either external, for example, in the society, in the family, in the extended family, 
in the community. There are criteria of worth that people are expected to live up to. And when they don't, they are shamed by the community, and then they try to restore their honor and so and so on. So that makes a lot of sense. But it also makes sense in this way. The criteria of worth can be an internal dynamic. And what I mean by that is if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image. So there's something internal to us that reflects the goodness and glory of God. And so even separate from the social dynamic, even separate from family, there's something within the human soul, within the human mind and heart that says, I have the potential for glory. And I think that there's something kind of in our bones that somehow hints at this criteria of worth. Do you, do you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. there? It's, you know, one author called it the search for significance, right? I mean, it's, you know, one of the best-selling books uh, in the counseling arena. Significance is not in the Bible. That word significance is not in the Bible, but the word honor and glory is in the Bible from Genesis, you know, to Revelation or the concepts of honor and glory are there. And I, so I think this criteria of worth can also relate to the psychological kind of internal sense that we were made for something more, something really beautiful and glorious. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think, too, I also really like the definition because it gives, it gives some room for further explanation and exploration. And I had the thought that it, it gives room for the implicit idea of shame and also the explicit idea of shame because that's going to change in cultures. It's going to change even person to person. I have five kids, and I think I have some of my children who, if I were to get impassioned at their basketball game, they would think, right on. And then maybe a few of, maybe two of them that would go, Mom, that's. Really, that's embarrassing. <laughs> this is a, my mom's acting shameful in this particular situation, but it allows some freedom of that because a lot of times honor shame dynamics might not be explicit and we don't realize them till we have either breached them or we have maybe used them in, you know, in. Now, when to you give say implicit honor. and explicit, what do you, can you? What do you mean by that a little bit? I guess I'm thinking of the, maybe the, if we could use the word rules or I think criteria maybe, mm, okay. the explicit as, uh, you know, as as Americans, we have certain things explicitly. You don't do these certain things. You don't, you know, walk up to your principal and spit in their face. Everyone pretty much knows that's just what, <laughs> you just don't, you don't do that. But there are there are things maybe more implicit that we, that are going to change family to family, culture to culture. And kind of unwritten rules. Um, yeah, maybe unwritten rules. And I think that definition that you read gives gives some wiggle room. And I think that's hard for us, especially as Americans, to say, well, this is not a clean-cut conversation. So what if I walk into the White House or to Buckingham Palace with uh, muddy shoes? Mm. Uh, am I bringing shame upon? Who am I bringing shame on? It depends on if you open your mouth and people can hear your accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we're, especially if Buckingham Palace, or, or uh, they have these nice accents from an American perspective, of course. 
Well, some people say you're bringing shame on yourself, but what if I don't feel psychological shame? You know, I have the pain of shame, but I'd be in a state of shame. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Now, the other question is, well, am I bringing shame on, on the queen or, or the palace? Well, some people will say, well, no, not exactly. But in another sense, I am, it's like I'm casting shame upon them. I'm, I'm treating them as if they uh, are devalued. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they're, maybe they're shamed in my, in my sense, so to speak, or right. in the eyes of other people. And maybe even to say that you are dishonoring them. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So kind of the opposite of shame, depending on how you look at it, could be dishonor. Uh, or a sin, not the opposite. The opposite could be honor, but to dishonor is to, and to shame somebody. If you're talking about this, this a state of shame, of shaming somebody. So one other reason why I suggest this definition is because it also helps us to get to the question of can Jesus suffer shame? You can imagine a lot of people get a little uncomfortable when you start saying that Jesus maybe felt ashamed or felt shame. But what it is about this definition is that you can be in a state of shame. After all, Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Mm. I mean, people did uh, treat him shamefully, you know, on the cross. So there is a sense of of that social shame, this uh, ill repute that was kind of put upon him. You know, David Dunnett points this out that we need a definition that where people can talk across these disciplines, and um, hopefully that moves us. This definition can be helpful. Because as he goes on to point out that shame is experienced in all cultures when a person experiences a threat of social devaluation and that the emotion of shame is universally experienced by people. And he underscores the, the social dynamic of that. So most of everything that fits in the definition is going to have this some social dimension, even if it's the fear of somebody finding out. So it may be private, but there's this, there is this ideal audience perhaps in your head. So quickly, let's go to honor. So to define that term, the definition that I love the most comes from this guy named Frank Stewart, Frank Henderson Stewart, who wrote this word honor. And I, a friend of mine calls it his honor shame Bible, that book. It's short, <laughs> sweet. And he says this, that honor is a person's right to respect. Simple as that. It's the, it's the right to respect. And so people can claim to have a right to respect for all sorts of reasons. You know, maybe they have some certain qualities that people think are praiseworthy. You know, so in this sense, honor is the measure of someone's worth. Chris Flanders, who's a mutual friend of ours, puts it a different way. And he's, he loves Frank Henderson Stewart's work. But he says, honor is the positive evaluation of a virtue. I want to share a project with you that demonstrates how the work of Mission One makes communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One walked alongside our partner organization in Nepal to create and implement plans that helped a community discover for themselves the transforming power of Jesus. These people went from living in caves with poor sanitary conditions to living in a village in a location with a smaller chance of landslides. Then they created a shared economy centered around goat husbandry. Sanitary conditions have improved and continue to improve. Meanwhile, people have seen the church as a source of blessing. Many began to come to faith, and today about half of the village are part of the church. This is a glimpse into the vision of Mission One to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all people. To learn more about Mission One projects like this one, visit mission1.org. Now, as you guys 
think about when you've heard people talk about honor, different ways you use honor. How does th- how do those definitions measure up to the way you see people talk about honor? I can think of one example in the in the literature about honor and shame that that I've read. One of the facets of of honor is that is that is that there are two ways that honor can be gained by it can be gained as ascribed honor or as achieved honor. And the right to respect from an ascribed honor perspective. We'll explain ascribed yeah, and sure. achieved. Ascribed honor is honor that is based upon social institutions. So, for example, if you're part of a honorable family and you have a certain last name or a certain surname, just having that name regardless of your own personal virtue, can give you the right to respect. Mm. If you, on the other hand, have great— Kardashian, for example, maybe, or— I mean, there are many examples of this, yeah. Bush, Obama, Trump, depending on your political persuasion. Yeah, yeah. So just being part of a particular family— gives you the right to respect. Maybe it's a very wealthy family, or maybe it's a very prominent family in a particular community. Being a member of that family gives you the right to respect. Now, from the perspective of achieved honor, in the ancient world, that was accomplished through military conquest and athletic achievements and so on. And so people were given respect based upon what they achieved. Today, in our modern world, those things are still true, but there are other ways that achieved honor is gained. For example, through education. You know, you gain a degree, you gain a particular uh, job position or a title that you have earned. Those are also ways to gain the right to respect. Mm-hmm. And th- so those are facets of, of the honor conversation. Mm-hmm. So if we go along with this idea of honor, then dishonor would seem to be the denial of that respect mm-hmm. or de- the denial that you deserve that respect. And so if you insult somebody, you are pretty clearly saying you don't deserve respect you don't deserve uh, this value you don't you don't you don't possess this virtue or whatever that you do have i don't evaluate you in a positive light so i must think through the different examples of honor people talk about fame which is a little bit what we were talking about before with 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 some of that but also what about is this helpful uh carrie when we think about someone who says I am an honorable person and I live from an honor code. And so, you know, that sort of, that sort of, of, of perception of honor, you know, I, I am a man of honor. I'm a woman of honor. Does this definition, is it helpful? I think it's, it is marginally helpful. I guess I think of it as that that would be situationally helpful because someone, you know, could, as you said, have their own personal code of ethics. Mm. And that is that is how they live a life of honor. They are doing the right thing as far as they understand it to be done. Mm. I guess when I think of it, when I look at, well, actually, I, I'm going to meet your question with a question. Could you also say honor is a person's right to be respected? Yes. So this, okay, so we're talking at really at a foundational human 
in the image of God type of respect? It could be that. Obviously, uh, honor is one thing we haven't actually addressed, but honor and shame are very relationally, contextually oriented. So, for example, in to go back to the political idea, if you're in a democratic sphere, Obama is going to be a revered name. You know, but if you're in the Republican sphere, maybe Bush or Trump or Reagan is going to be a revered name. So there's a bit of contextual dynamic. So yes, from this from God's perspective, yes, you know, people are worthy of honor, made in the image of God. But from the the right to be respected could be something that said, let's just go back to the chivalrous knight or the southerner who duels. They say, Hey, I'm worthy of respect and I live out of honor because I don't cheat people and I treat people kindly and I'm generous and I'm whatever, you know. And so therefore I deserve to be respected by people. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind as you as you're saying that, Jackson, is the degree to which people who have the right to respect actually do not verbalize that. Mm. So if you have honor in a community, you don't need to announce it mm. because everybody recognizes it. And everybody kind of knows their place in the pecking order. It's almost, it's an invisible thing, but everybody kind of knows it. Mm. Yeah, you're bringing up a good point. And it actually is a great segue to our next conversation. And that is, what is an honor-shame culture? If honor and shame are universal dynamics, then how do we define a culture of honor or culture of shame? This is not the easiest thing to answer, but what I tend to tell people is that honor and shame, to label something honor-shame culture as opposed to a guilt-innocence culture or a fear-power culture, it's just just a, a nifty categorization simply for the sake of being able to talk about stuff. You say, what's a southern state? What's a northern state? You have these different ways in which you categorize people. Are they a generous company? Is There's a little bit of eye in the beholder thing going on here. But when we talk about honor-shame cultures, we typically are thinking of places like East Asia, the Middle East. There's a traditional aspect to honor-shame culture. There's the emphasis on relationship and collective identity in these, in these cultures. And so to call something honor-shame culture is simply to say – that it has is a culture with a cluster of characteristics mm. where reputation is tremendous concern, tremendous importance. One's reputation must be cultivated and defended at, at almost any cost. So you have these more extreme examples where people will you know, commit suicide if they've been dishonored or, or been shamed. Or you do have things like honor killing because the family's honor has been diminished or in American history with Hamilton. Everybody knows his story. It led to his death with dueling because there was a sense of, you know, disrespect, dishonor between them. Mm. So I would suggest that honor, shame cultures are not a static thing. That is really, if you think about more like a color spectrum, what are the, what are the main colors? It's uh, yellow, red, blue. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. And if you think about a color palette, that's kind of the same thing with these various characteristics. It's with the guilt, shame, and fear, where it's really we're all on the palette, but maybe honor shame cultures are those ones that kind of veer towards a little bit more concern for reputation, collective identity, hierarchy, so forth and so on. Does that help, would you think, to, to clarify what honor shame culture or does it just make it more muddy? 
Well, I think, I mean, the whole conversation is just muddy, and we kind of all have to just be okay with it, first of all. But second, I think, too, is I think of a friend of mine, a Chinese friend, that when I was living in East Asia, and she gave me a scenario. She said, Carrie, if your daughter got in trouble and got taken to jail, what is the first thing you would ask? And I said, well, I would ask, what did she do when the police called? And she said, yep. But in China, what we would ask is, who do we know at that police station? And I think of that story often because I think maybe on a very simplistic level, we can ask what are our maybe our knee jerk responses, you know, and as an American, I'm going to rely maybe on the law or I'm going to rely on guilt and innocence. It doesn't mean that I disregard honor shame, but her instinct was communal and her instinct was honor shame. Um, without even really thinking. And so for me, that's helpful so that I don't go, well, America's this, Germany's this, Israel's this, because it's just not that cut and dry. But if we can think of maybe knee-jerk responses, Mm. do you think that's a helpful, really simplistic way of looking at it, I think? Yeah. Yeah, I do think that's helpful. And maybe another way of uh, helping most of the people who be listening to this podcast is to think even within America— the United States, where it's typically categorized as guilt innocence, you have the American South, which is famously more honor, shame oriented. Yet, at the same time, it's within a broader guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, so why? Because there are certain things that are the knee jerk reaction. So, if somebody cuts you off in the South, you're driving on the road and someone cuts you off, what's going to happen? It's road rage. Yeah, because <laughs> you disrespected me. You didn't treat me right, right? Yeah. And so you're going to have a little bit more of that. What also? What happens if uh, you know you insult someone's mom? Well, I mean, people may just write you off if you're, I don't know, in some place of the country, but not in the South. Yeah, that, those are fighting words. <laughs> okay, so I mean, it's just a knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, things I heard recently on a podcast is that in cultures where there is greater vulnerability where the law does not protect people Mm. as much as what we take for granted here in the United States, generally speaking. Wherever there's greater vulnerability, there's greater interdependence. Mm. So people are more reliant on their neighbors, their extended family. Uh, There's a greater sense of reciprocity because if they individually or their families attack, they seek refuge in the community because there is no external law enforcement, Mm. you know, that's going to protect them or a fair system of in the courts. And so an honor code becomes essential to survival. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I think that's helpful because it helps us understand that there's a real sort of beautiful function for honor in that. It helps us preserve life. It helps us survive. It helps us continue our families. Of course, there's a pathological side to it, you know, with cycles of honor killings, whether it's between the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, here in America, or if it's gang violence in the inner city, you know, which happens in American cities and in really cities, you know, all over the world. 
or if it happens uh, in a tribe in the Middle East or South Asia somewhere. And so I think one one additional point I, w- I would add is that where there's a, a strong honor-shame culture, it seems that honor is more important than life itself. Mm-hmm. At the very edge of the extreme of honor-shame cultures, the most honor-shame-oriented communities Honor is more important than life itself. And when you speak of honor, you are not talking about being famous. You're right. You are talking about reputation. I think it's it's reputation. I think virtue can be mixed in with that okay. for sure. Reputation could be encompassing. It could be uh, I'm I'm known for being a good singer, but it also could be a I'm known for being a fair guy, uh, a generous person or whatever. Someone who was kind to uh, his neighbor 10 years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. someone who helped a stranger, you know, someone who is known to be person of their word, you know, who, who can be trusted. That's a reputation that's linked to virtue. There can also be a, a reputation linked to power. So, you know, it's the idea of if you mess with that person, if you mess with that man, you you might end up getting killed because this is what he did before, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. so if that killing was, you know, <laughs> exceedingly unjust, it's a reputation and it causes fear, perhaps. Uh, it may not be linked with virtue. things that you see in China, people talk about identity in two different ways. There's the, that's called the little me and the big me, the xiaowa and the dawa. And in cultures where honor, shame, we'll call honor, shame cultures, there is a more emphasis, increasingly greater emphasis on the big me. That is the me in relationship, interconnected with other people, rather than me as distinct and different and, and apart from everyone else. And this makes sense that where you do see yourself more wrapped up in a community, you're going to be more mindful of what is your standing, your role, your reputation, because that's everything. That's, that's life. And, and as much as I think Westerners kind of say, who cares what other people think? Well, the truth is that we all do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I sometimes and that's joke. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I sometimes joke about the fact that here in America, you know, collective Collective identity is alive and well. Mm-hmm. Just ask any fan of a particular sports team from mm-hmm. their own city or area, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like their vicarious honor from, you know, their baseball team or basketball team or football team or soccer team winning, you know, the championship is immense. And this idea of collective identity is an, an honor based on on our group identity, mm-hmm. our group achievement is—it's—it's it's a human thing. It's—it's uh, it's not part of a particular area of the world that's excluded from another area of the yeah, world. Yeah, I mean, even God is concerned with his reputation, his renown. Most definitely. I mean, and part of what we see, you see in the law was that this law was going to make God known. You know, people are going to 
you know, Israel was supposed to be a, a country that people go, wow, look, 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 how they're, these are different people, you know, so how we're known does matter. And it is a biblical concern. The issue is what are we known for? So hopefully that, you know, at least uh, stirs the mud in this muddy <laughs> world of definitions. Can I just add something, jump in here? Just what you said right there, you, you drew a link between the laws of God and the reputation of God. Mm-hmm or one could say the glory of God. And I think this is very helpful because these things truly are connected in Scripture. What God was trying to do through his people is to show that as a culture, as a people, God's laws made them more virtuous, they made them healthier, it made them a more just people, it made them you know, famous. It made them to become more prosperous. Think of uh, Queen, who was the queen? The Queen of Sheba who came to uh, visit Solomon and said, the half has not been told me. You know, she was astounded Mm. at the magnificence of the nation of Israel and the temple and the God of Israel. All right, guys, this is a great place to kind of hunker down and Think about how this all applies to maybe some contemporary events. And so I'll just simply say two words. Give me your response. Cancel culture. Oh, man. (laughs) Complicated. I think that's the word I would use if I had one word to describe it. Uh, It seems to me there might be a connection here between honor, shame, cancel culture. Uh, Werner, do you have a I mean, there's a huge connection. I mean, when someone gets, quote, unquote, canceled— I think it's an implicit recognition that the law is not enough. Mm. Essentially, they are being punished by a community because the law, the legal code, is not sufficient to execute the moral judgment necessary. Mm. Mm. Wow. Now, there might be somebody, there might be somebody out there who says, Nick, what does he mean by cancel culture? Can you think of any stories that we might say as our cancel culture or as an example of being canceled? Well, recently in Georgia, there was the All-Star game that was canceled by the Major League Baseball. Literally canceled, yeah. Exactly. And they're moving it to another city because of the uh, Republican legislature of Georgia adding a whole set of voting restrictions in the attempt to add so-called security to the voting process. So Coca-Cola came out against it. Delta Airlines came out against it. And then what do you know? Major League Baseball said, we're not going to have our all-star game in your city, in Atlanta. That's a good example. Mm, Uh, And so basically with cancel culture, for those of you who may be less familiar with the term, the idea is that somebody steps out of line. You know, in some kind of public judgment, they make a joke that's inappropriate. They say make a statement that's not right, or they they support the wrong person in a political race or whatever. Colin Kaepernick would might be an example of this. He was protesting treatment of blacks by police, and he kneels, and people say, "Hey, he needs to be fired. He needs to be let go. He needs to be canceled." And there's a book a few years back called "So You've Been Publicly Shamed." It tells all kinds of examples of, of doxing and these other terms where 
they're fired from their jobs because they made some kind of inappropriate tweet or whatnot. And this all relates because, as you said, cancel culture is honor shame culture. Mm-hmm. It is the excluding of people, putting them on the outside. And that's that's classic honor shame behavior there. Mm-hmm. And in addition, it's a recognition that the individual is less important than the collective, than yeah. the community. You know, that individual that's quote unquote being canceled is entitled to human rights. They're made in the image of God, let's say. Mm-hmm. But whatever they said, whatever they did, it can be deemed so terrible that their job can be taken away. They can be fired. They can be quote unquote canceled in order for the moral or power advancement of another group. And let's be an equal opportunity. So far, we've mentioned things that are kind of known with the American political left. Is there a cancel culture and the American political right? Of course there is. Okay. Uh, can you think of anybody or anybody who's called for the canceling? Because, you know, when you watch the news, people are, are – it's the the Republican Party, the conservative party who tends to be fed up mm-hmm. with this cancel culture. Well, I know a few years ago a lot of people were wanting to cancel, I guess, Target because they were they were wrestling through the transgendered bathroom issue. And so there was a big, you know, don't go to Target, don't shop at Target, cancel Target um, from the more of a conservative perspective. I know the bathroom issue has seemed to brought a lot of that up for, you know, the quote right, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, you mentioned Target. Uh, I think of things like people who say happy holidays or the Merry Christmas. So don't shop there because they're anti-Christmas. So mm. that's canceled culture in that regard. I remember when we were really young, Southern Baptists perfected cancel culture with Disney. Mm-hmm. Because for whatever reason, Disney supports this, Disney supports that. There's there's plenty of cancel culture to go around. Let's think about then how people have responded to cancel culture. Who, that when you, people get really fed up and they don't want to deal with this cancel culture anymore, what do they do? What do they become? Shameless. Mm. They they say, I don't care what people think. I'm going to do what I want. You can't tell me what to do. And by every definition we have, that's the definition of that is to be shameless. Mm-hmm. But I would ask, uh, Jackson, when people say that, do they have in mind a certain audience who feels the same way? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Do they have in mind, man, if I say it this way, I'm going to be called a hero by, you know, these other people yeah. who, you know. Yeah. So I, I don't know that you can completely divorce the community sort of social mm-hmm. aspect of this, uh, even in that example. Yeah, that's I, I. That's exactly I was looping back to you said a little bit earlier, Werner, about, you know, we have become more and more collective in the West just even in the last decade. And I mean, I, that's exactly my people no longer go to Chick-fil-A. You know, my people no longer shop at Target and they no longer do this, like my people. So even if you as an individual think, well, uh, I could still go to Target, but you, it's almost like you don't want to be associated with the other people that do go to Target. And so you just hands off, you know. Yeah, you mentioned we're becoming more collective. I would say more tribal. I mean, mm-hmm. a tribe is a type of collective. Fair. Yeah, yeah. And each tribe has its own criteria of what is praiseworthy, honorable, shameful, and so forth. And so ironically, 
those people who might say they're being shameless, or maybe they would or wouldn't, I'm not sure exactly how they might say it, but they're not going to be canceled anymore, not going to be shamed. They're actually going to be honored within their community. Exactly. As bold and courageous. But funny enough, many of those people still are participating in cancel culture, but it's just it's who they're canceling and why they're canceling other people. Mm -hmm. It's still there. Yeah. We'll we'll wrap up this uh, this part of the podcast here. Uh, I'm sure that we've maybe stirred a hornet's nest for a lot of people listening. With each episode, we want to talk about you know how all this stuff plays out in some kind of current event in our lives and whatnot. So continue the conversation. Talk with friends, family, uh, coworkers. What they think honor is. What they think shame is. What how does honor shame play out in their lives and in the community? Leave a comment. Subscribe. Let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time.